My name is Stacy Sargent Lawton, and I'm a hospital chaplain. Each week on this podcast, a few fellow chaplains will join me to discuss an episode or two of the great TV hospital drama, ER, from our unique perspectives as spiritual caregivers. This is ER Chaplains Watching ER. Father, please protect my soul. Hi, and welcome to ER Chaplains Watching ER. After a very long unintended hiatus, I am your host, Stacy Sargent Lawton, and with me tonight I have two other wonderful chaplains Sarah Jane Moran. Hello. And Janie Toy Powell. Hi. We are so glad to be back with you guys. Um, we are so sorry that we've been gone so long. Life just happens. Um, we all have jobs and kids and um, one of our co-hosts just had a baby. So there's been lots of stuff going on. Um, people getting sick and schedules changing at the last minute on recording days. But um, we're here now. So um, for all the time that we missed we wish you Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Valentine's Day, um, Happy St. Patrick's Day, everything else. And um, some ER news that happened while we were away is that Grey's Anatomy actually surpassed ER to be the longest running TV hospital drama. So that was kind of a big deal. And um, I think George Clooney commented on that, too. I can't remember what he what he said about it, but that was all in the news. Um, big competition. So Grey's is the the senior hospital drama now. It's kind of hard to believe. So maybe someday we'll do um, ER chaplains watching Grey's Anatomy. I don't know. We've all, um, oh. <laughs> a lot of us have watched it already and talked about how they need a chaplain all the time. Um, <laughs> I've only seen the first two seasons, so I'd be very behind. Yeah, I'm just like 13 I, I, I years stopped, behind. I stopped after two seasons. I don't know. I guess everybody <laughs> had slept with everybody else at that point, and I figured it was probably a dead end. I don't know. <laughs> I stopped for a while when Izzy was having ghost sex, but then I came back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's been some weird stuff, yeah. There have been some. But ER had some really weird storylines in the later seasons, too, so maybe eventually ah, okay. we'll get to that, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but right now we are almost at the end of season one of ER, um, we're we're going to make it. We're going to get there. So we are coming back tonight um, talking about episodes 20 and 21 of the first season. The first of which is called Full Moon Saturday Night. And um, as we were getting ready to record, Sarah Jane said it looked like a pretty full moon out there tonight. So I had to look it up. But tomorrow night is a full moon. So we're almost there, but it's not Saturday night. Um, so anyway, <laughs> I'll do a short little synopsis of Full Moon Saturday Night. Dr. Green oh, is... Um, isn't Carrie on, on call? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Oh, our co-host yeah. Carrie oh, is I'm on call. call. Oh, you're on call too. Okay, <laughs> double prayers. So anything could happen. It's almost a full moon. <laughs> anything can happen. That's right. All right, go ahead, um, Yeah, so Dr. Green is still coping with the emotional trauma of losing the um, pregnant patient that he had in the previous episode, Love's Labor Lost. And his marriage falling apart, too. He's just going through a lot. Um, and all of this happens to come about at the same time that the ER's new chief of emergency medicine arrives, um, Dr. William Wild Willie Swift. And so Mark is actually away when he comes in because Susan has told him, told Mark to take the night off um, and, and spend some time to himself to try to 
cope with all the trauma. Um, so Dr. Swift is not at all impressed with Mark, but very impressed with Susan. Um, there's all kinds of crazy things going on in the ER on this full moon Saturday night, like a patient that Carol has who says he's a werewolf and a man on PCP <laughs> strapped to a gurney who just goes crazy and starts breaking windows and stuff in the ER. Um, Dr. Benton's mother is a patient in the hospital and is very sick and he is not taking that very well um, and is being being pretty, <laughs> pretty grouchy with the doctors who are taking care of her and doesn't think that they're doing a good enough job. So those are sort of the high points of Full Moon Saturday Night, and we can jump in from there. As far as the uh, staff goes, I think that one of the main themes in this episode is um, the contrast of, of either thinking, trying to control things, and then realizing that you don't have control. And I think that... Um, for Green, he's really realizing that sometimes things are out of his control and that's really bumming him out. There's several scenes in the beginning of the episode where he's just shown sort of staring out into space, um, mm. like he's trying to figure out his own existence. Yeah. And then we have um, Benton, who's um, trying to exert control over the situation with his mother and failing miserably at that and just angering people. And of course, the whole idea of uh, you know a full moon in in the hospital is that you can't control what's going on. People are out of control. Situations are out of control, and yet, as the ER staff is trying to keep it as in control as possible. So that's one of our main themes, I believe. Yeah, well put. So, how do you guys? care for, spiritually care for people who um, are trained to be in control or to maintain control? And how do you care for them when things are out of control? Well, that's when the most important thing, I think, is our non-anxious presence to begin with. There's a lot to be said for that. Even just non-anxious silence in the midst of when you feel out of control, usually time seems to stretch on when you feel like there's a crisis that you just can't quite get a hold of. And so the chaplain being present is designed to try and make people feel like there's one person in the room that's grounded. Mm -hmm. And just acknowledging, I think, that we all live with the illusion of control, and it's, it's really... It can be crippling when we're confronted with the reality that we're not in control of very much, really, when it comes down to it. Um, and that's that's what we all have to learn to live with. Um, even those of us who aren't used to going to work and saving lives every day, um, you know, we all feel a certain degree of responsibility and control over the things that that we do. Um, in our jobs especially, and it's it's hard when that is falls apart for anybody. I think we all share a common CPE supervisor who told us that we do save lives, but just in a different way. <laughs> do you guys remember that? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I, rem I try to remember that myself sometimes. But, um, yeah, I, I have found myself flipping into that, getting caught up in that, and that need to control myself. And um, 
just wanting to help in whatever way I can <laughs> that um, is, it, you know, that can help them. Cause I know that I'm just, I'm picking up all these feelings that they have of um, being out of control and I want to do what I can to fix that. I recently found myself running all over the hospital trying to find an object that had come in with a patient. It was, and it was relevant to their treatment. And I was, um, go, I was in another unit digging through the trash, um, with, <laughs> wow. with my gloves on. Um, but because I just was picking up on this, uh, this particular doctor's need and, and feeling of, of stress and wanting to know, um, this information. And so that probably wasn't my best moment PPE wise, but I'm just trying to name some of my own vulnerability here uh, when everything just seems to be out of control. Yeah. Well, the odd thing about a hospital is that ER, ER staff is trained to try and control what's going on with the patient as much as possible. There's, there's mm -hmm. standards and there's ways that they you know, do triage and figure out what they're going to do next that are supposed to be standard. But because there's so many variables in any given situation, um, that it, it, it almost seems a little funny when you think about it abstractly. <laughs> um, Especially in the ER. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, a lot of times when, when, uh, Stakes are high and situations are really intense. Um, the relationships are pretty intense too. And we're seeing that, um, well, we see that all through the series. But in this particular episode, we're seeing um, Green being caught in his own fog. We're um, seeing um, Benton's relationship with the uh, physical therapist. I don't remember what her name is. Is, is sort of sparking at this point because of the intense situation that they're in with his mother. They keep getting thrown together and uh, that's going to move forward as in um, other episodes. But um, the intensity of their interactions are, are really part of the whole situation of control in this episode too. Right, Jeannie, yeah. Jeannie, yes. Maybe that's why hospital or medical dramas are such good material for soapy kind of shows. Yes, absolutely. All of that, it's like a pressure cooker. It, it is. Those um, human things, and it just magnifies all those, all the ways there are to be human. It, maybe hospitals just do that, you know? Yeah. Um, in general, but maybe, and, and maybe that's why I like working in one, which is not all entirely healthy, but I guess I'm just not, I have a, I'm, I'm establishing a pattern here tonight of naming all these little quirks about me. So well, that's another know. thing we talked about in CPE <laughs> was, are we voyeurs like watching, watching mm. all these strange uh, things unfold and sort of bizarre cases. And, you know, is that, you know, we, we have to find the balance and realize things that we're, we're looking at and what we're witnessing and what our attitude is about it because we could become voyeurs if our attitude is wrong. It's a great point. I think for me, for a lot of it is just, I appreciate honesty and 
and realness so much more than surface stuff. And I mean, like small talk with anybody will just suck the energy out of me. I would rather do anything than make small talk with people. But if you want to talk to me about, you know, your deepest, darkest, saddest things, I'm totally down for it. Um, and so I think that in a hospital, there's just no room for all that surface nicety stuff. Everything is intense and um, life and death, literally. So I that's don't know. Why, well, but during training, that's why cold callers, calls were so terrifying. Yes. When you just had to walk into the room and didn't really know what was going on, you had to employ a little bit of small talk, at least at the beginning, before you could dive into the deep, dark, you know, fears and of death. Yeah, that's still my <laughs> least favorite part of it. Honestly. Oh yes, oh yes, I, I agree. Have to get you have to get used to it. That's part of the numbers. Occasionally, that will, you know, bring forth some good stories as well. I've had plenty of cold calls, but especially with older patients telling me about their lives, that I really do enjoy. But yeah, in the in the ER, there is no room for that type of small talk. Yeah, it's right to the point. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of feels like just the center of the universe for me. Uh, the, you know, that ev everything about being alive in the world is all happening kind of in a hospital, and especially in a busy shift. Just there is love and loss and crisis and grief and anger and even hunger and thirst. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just so many things um, that are so part of our human experience are just all happening and swirling around there together in that one unit. Um, and I do think those of us who, who feel vocationally called to work with, with people so intensely, um, we, we do respond to that. Yeah. It really is a microcosm in a, in a small space. And another thing that I really think attracts me to that, to that type of work and that calling is the fact that, well, in real life in general, I really struggle with either sort of focusing on the past or, or planning for the future. And yet in the ER, the ER is the purest form of now. You really can't plan too much. You can't think about the past. You just have to be absolutely in the present with whatever is going on and just feel it as acutely as possible. That's that's the way that it works the best, whether for you know the chaplain or the doctor or the nurse as they figure out triage. And I do think that um, in faith, the now, for, for lack of a better way of explaining it, you know, is something that we really, really try to explain and explore. And I think the ER does a good job of helping us experience that. Mm -hmm. And all of that is just too much for Mark Green at the moment. So he that's why he takes off and um, he ends up, I think, at a, an arcade playing video games, just trying to do something to unplug from the reality of the loss that he experienced in the ER. Um, and oh, and he stops at the at, at the cafe, I guess, before that. And that's where he meets up with Dr. Swift, not knowing that is Dr. Swift. But they do have kind of a meet cute. And um so disastrous meet you yeah because then when dr swift you know comes into the er and um does explain that he's the new chief of emergency medicine um susan had mistaken him for uh 
a moonlighter of someone coming in that they needed all hands on deck and they called extra people in. And so she sort of talks down to him and starts giving him orders. And then he tells everyone who he is. Um, and he calls, decides to sort of run a drill and pages all the staff to see how quickly they can get there for this emergency that, um, that they think is happening. And Mark doesn't show up for hours because he's not even looking at his pager. He's completely disengaged. Um, and then Dr. Swift recognizes him when he does show up as that guy from the diner before. Who was viciously attacking the bagel. Yes. So not a great first impression. There's a lot of unfair things going on, I felt like. Yes. That's about me, but I just felt like well, Susan had told him to go home and to take yeah. a break. Also, he wasn't looking at his pager. I think any of us who work on call have, you know, there's... There's a certain level of energy that even keeping your pager on requires. Yes. And so he needed a break from that. And he didn't know Wild Willie was coming in that day. Right. And, um, <laughs> and then and Dr. Swift didn't know that Mark was in the middle of this thing, that he was in the immediate aftermath of that loss mm -hmm. from the last episode. And there's just so many factors here that, it, it just felt so unfair and it's not fair now. Yeah, felt really bad for Mark. Um, felt really bad for Peter, too, even though he's being kind of a jerk to Dr. Taglieri and the other staff who are taking care of his mom. He's obviously really worried about her and feeling really guilty because, if you'll recall from the previous episode, um, she fell down the stairs at home because she was calling out his name and he was asleep on the couch and didn't hear her. And so she was trying to come down to him and fell down the stairs and broke her hip. So he feels really, really guilty for that. And he's now furious at Dr. Taglieri for discharging her and is telling Tag that she's not ready to go home yet. And Tag confronts him with the reality that she's never going to be able to go back home, that she needs to go into a nursing facility for the rest of her life. And Peter just refuses to accept that at all. Yeah, he's just such a classic case of denial in the stages of grief in these last couple of episodes. But life will force them out of that pretty soon. Yeah. And then when he goes in to see his mom, he sees that she is in soft restraints. Her arms are restrained to the bed frame, and she's very distressed by that. And so Peter immediately undoes them. And then he asks Jeannie about it because Jeannie had offered to sit with his mom to give him a break. And so he, he confronts Jeannie angrily and says, why did you let them put her in restraints? And Jeannie says, I was the one who asked them to. She needs them. And, and Peter just kicks her out and tells her not to come back. He's furious. And then, of course, once he leaves the room, his mom pretty quickly falls out of bed um, and, and hurts herself further. So she obviously did need their strengths because she's confused and she doesn't know exactly where she is or why she's there. And so she wants to try to get up and she can't. So did you guys notice that when Dr. Swift came in or when Tag came into the unit and he saw Dr. Swift, he said, 
oh, is that Wild Willie? We played ball together at Ohio State or something like that. And um, I thought, was I the only one who thought, um, Dr. Swiss looks like he's about 50 and Tad <laughs> looks like he's about mm, 30, probably a little older because of just how long it takes to go to school and whatever. But I mean, it, I, that was not convincing in the least to me, but I thought it was hilarious that like they apparently were peers at school, but they look like they're at least 15 years apart in age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't really think about it. I just figured it was a reference to kind of the good old boy network, like poor Susan just can't get ahead. Although it ends up working in her favor that she, you know, sort of takes charge. That actually impresses him instead mm -hmm. of putting him off. Um, and, you know, she comes off as tough and capable. So it's a, a good combination for her, even though it's not really fair either. Right. Yeah. But yeah, oh yeah. yeah, you know, there's my buddy long time ago. <laughs> That's yeah, I some, love that's something only guys do, you know. <laughs> yeah, that was, that's a good catch. I think that, yeah, and I was thinking earlier about how I I did like how he responded positively to her assertiveness. Yeah. And um and and that is a nice like parallel there that you set up. So I just thought it was kind of weird and funny, but you did something smart with it. <laughs> yeah, Swift is so impressed with Susan that he thinks that she should be the chief resident, and he tells her that, but she says she's only second year, and I, I did not realize up to this point, I think, that she was behind Mark. I thought that they were in the same year. Did y'all well, pick they up on that? They, they work together like peers. Um, yeah. They're not that, they're not that far apart, yeah. Sometimes when I hear things like that, I just assume... Oh, they must have said that before, and I just didn't notice it. But <laughs> you, you being so detail oriented, Stacy, you you probably know that if they hadn't, you would notice if they had said it before. But um, but yeah, that's significant, and um, puts her in another kind of position there, of, of having a little bit less power mm -hmm. than everyone else. Yeah, she's constantly having to push against that. But she's obviously very talented and capable doctor, and Dr. Swift recognizes that. So we get another little um, bit of ER terminology to add to our ER Urban Dictionary in this one with popsicle pledges. Um, a bunch of frat boys were in a hazing ritual and got left out in the park mostly naked and got frostbite, um, which does not sound fun at all. <laughs> and, and there's a word for it, for the thing. Yeah, of so. course. Uh, oh, we got some more yeah. popsicle pledges. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, how often does this happen? <laughs> That's the first time they've seen it. <laughs> This is why I, I just can't condone my kids getting involved in that kind of freak life. I know that they, I know that they have some good points, but overall, oh my gosh. Uh. Well, it was the 90s. Hazing wasn't quite as frowned upon as it is now. Yes. And the frat boys, of course, caused trouble in the ER and, like, put a cherry bomb in the trash can. And when it explodes, all these papers go everywhere that look like medical records and I'm like I know there was no HIPAA but you guys are they seriously just putting people's medical records in an open trash can where anybody can see them and not shredding them or anything like it was a 
It was a crazy time in the 90s. It was like the Wild <laughs> West out here. <laughs> So There's a scene um, with Green and uh, and uh, oh, Clooney on the subway. What's his, what's his doctor name? <laughs> Ross. Ross. Dr. Ross. Um, <laughs> and it really is is kind of showing the differences and like where they are psychologically at that particular time. You know, they're good friends and they bounce with each other as one is having a hard time and the other, but. Uh, Green just can't stay still. He's standing and he's pacing and mm -hmm. he's swinging around the poles. And um, Ross is sitting there like looking intently at him this whole time, like trying to figure out what it is that's really going on with him. And I think it's sort of a poignant. I always love the, the, the like buddy scenes with the two of them. I do too. They just, they seem just really sincere. I don't know. I think that they, I hope to think that they work well together because mm -hmm. I always like the way they interact. And again, he gets off and he's just lost again. He's rejected, you know, his friend's offer of help and comfort. Yeah, and then um, Doug calls Jen, who's still Mark's wife, um, even though they, it seems like they're ending things, and she actually does go to the L station to find Mark. He's just sitting there out in the cold, and, you know, yeah. Doug told her he was in trouble, so she came. She obviously does still care about him, even though their marriage is not going to work. Yes. I found that meaningful, and mm -hmm. that was something that surprised me in hospital ministry to see, and I can't remember, we may have talked about it here before, but um, just the, the complex nature of relationships and history that people have together and how they show up for one another when they're in crisis. And I thought that was um, the way Jen was there and caring for him in a way of somebody, it, it, just honoring like the marriage that they did have. And, the, and the, when it did work, I thought it was really special. And um, I've seen, you know, I've seen that before and at the bedside with, you know, ex-spouses who've been there to care for their, um, somebody that they loved. Maybe they still love and just have to have a different boundary with or a different name for the relationship. But um, I think that's just so delicate and beautiful and something I didn't really understand until I was in the middle of crisis with people because before I did that you know people were married or they were not married and and they it was it was they were together or it was over and, and it, just, it was a lot more black and white so I saw mm -hmm. it you know really in action well and now that they have the, the privacy laws it can be it can be tricky um you know if they aren't technically married, but usually the staff is pretty good about working with that. That said, I also think that that's something that needs to be addressed as far as, um, you know, gay couples. A lot of times that can be an issue if they're not legally married. Um, and I really think that they need to work on that. It sort of depends on the staff you get, how, as, uh, how understanding they are, you know, even if and it depends on whether the family gets along with the partner, too, but it can get complicated. Mm -hmm. I think that comes up a few times 
throughout the series in different ways. Um, not to spoil anything. I, I don't think that's a huge spoiler, but no. I think there are a few times that that comes up. I haven't, I haven't watched very many of the seasons, but I'm glad to hear that. I hope we get to dive into it a little bit. Yeah. I keep thinking, you know, it truly, you know, what Dr. Green is going through is really, you know, a trauma-induced. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Carrie would have some better explanations on, on how to, you know, care for someone who's been exposed to trauma. She's, that's one of her passions um, is dealing with, and even um, I've been listening to the podcast, you know, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Yeah. And I'm in the book, The Order of the Phoenix, and they're talking about you know, oh, the, the general consensus is that Harry is, is the moody, angry 15-year-old in that particular book. <laughs> but recently, they were talking about the fact that all of the trauma that, you know, this character has endured really, you know, affects the way that he acts and reacts to other people. And we really need to keep that in mind, that um, trauma changes the way that people do interact with others and whether they're, you know, ready or able to accept help. So... I do wonder, you know, what, obviously there are people that are there for Green, and we do know that his wife, you know, comes through for him in this tough time, and I, we see Ross reaching out, but what else, what other kind of, you know, support can, can we have for hospital staff? Well, we could have chaplains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just to talk and decompress. And I mm -hmm. think we did talk in, in this season a little bit earlier about sometimes having having meetings after a really traumatic event to kind of like decompress and um, talk through them and see if there's anybody in particular that wants to meet with the chaplain to talk one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but again, I wish Gary was able to provide us with some more resources yeah. <laughs> right now, because that's not my area of expertise, but I, but I do recognize it. I've been reading a bit on and asking other chaplains um, how they are involved when a the staff is involved in a, a sentinel event that mm -hmm. I would call that's what Mark was involved in and um, how to care. I would like to be more active in caring for our staff when something like that happens, um, our staff and providers, just because it is so much and it's so heavy and so intense. Um, and there are, I think there are some hospitals where chaplains are a big part of that team. Um, Sometimes they are present in like a root cause analysis just to be that non-anxious presence and supportive if the staff persons involved want that. Um, and I, I like that, you know, I think of that really, to me, in my mind, that is really good staff care. I can see, though, that it might be really hard for some people because there's a lot of shame associated with that. And, and there's already some shame, I think, going on with people's associations of clergy. So, you know, that, that might just amplify that a little bit more, but I love the idea that that happens and the, the fact that that happens in some places. And I wish maybe that'll be a long-term goal for me as a chaplain is to be there and be part of the process. Cause as what we saw for their systemic response to that event, I thought was terribly unsupportive and painful and, um, and there is definitely, obviously, a need to look into the um, procedures, or the systems, the policies, all, all the things that happened and went on. And um, but it just felt so cold. And and 
lacking in any kind of big picture perspective. Mm -hmm. That's a time I think that we, I, I tell my social worker and child life friends all the time that we're the big picture people and, and we're there to, to remind, you know, with all of our friends who are so detail and task oriented when they do their job, there needs to be somebody there that encourages them to step back and, and look at this situation um, a little bit broader. And I think one of us would have been a good voice in this situation. Yeah, and as I was um, looking at this episode again and thinking about Mark and everything that he's gone through with um, definitely secondary trauma, but also my supervisor at work um, just recently did a workshop on moral injury and um, just the fact that we all have this internal moral code and how harmful and hard it is when that gets broken. And for Mark, I mean, he's a good person. He went into medicine to try to help people. And as a doctor, he, you know, took an oath to first do no harm. And it's really tough for doctors because a lot of times they do have to harm patients in order to help them, you know, in a certain sense. And he did all these really, really horrible procedures on this pregnant woman trying so hard to save her life. And then in the end, it didn't work. So he just harmed her for no reason, you know, in the end. And that's, that's really hard for him to reconcile with his own internal moral code. So there's that level to it, too. I think he's just sort of questioning who he is as a person and as a doctor and whether he can continue to do that and be that. Um, so one of the last things that happens, um, on the full moon Saturday night is they have a gunshot wound, which in any city of any size seems then you're going to have gunshot wounds coming into the ER on a Saturday night, at least in mine. Um, and the, the man in question who got shot was drunk and accidentally broke into his neighbor's house thinking it was his own and, and was shot with a 12 gauge to the chest. So they end up cracking his chest. Um, which I have seen done a few times as a last-ditch effort. And Carter gets to hold the patient's heart and massage it. And he says at one point that it feels like a bag of worms or something like that. It was a really kind of gross image. Um, but they they are able to finally get a rhythm with internal paddles and bring the guy back, at least at least temporarily. I don't think we find out what happens to him ultimately. But and then um, a baby comes in with hypothermia after being found in a trash can. And this really upsets Susan. And as the viewers, we realize, and anybody else who knows her is going to realize that, she's thinking about her sister, Chloe, who was very pregnant, well, was pregnant and disappeared. Um, so she's wondering where Chloe is and what's become of this baby because Chloe's not real good at taking care of herself, much less anybody else. So Susan's really worried about her sister and her baby. And then Dr. Benton finally comes around to the idea that um, his mom's care is beyond 
what his family can offer, and he goes to Jeannie's house and asks her if she will help him find a good nursing home. You can tell this is really hard for him to do. Um, but Jeannie's a good friend and doesn't say, like, no, you were a jerk to me before. I'm not going to help you. <laughs> um, she's very kind. And in the process meets Jeannie's husband. Yes, who I was like, who's that guy? Because he's played by a different actor later when he sort of has a bigger role in the series. Um, he he's Yeah, they switch actors. So this guy didn't look familiar oh. to me, but <laughs> we'll see a lot of Al later, but he will look much different. I just figured it was foreshadowing at this point because it's, the I, well, we may have seen him very briefly before, but, you know, Benton actually talks to him for a few minutes when he rings the doorbell. So. Yeah. And then, oh, just another little bit of um, fun 90s stuff. The, the shift ends with a dance party because Carter calls into the radio station and requests that the DJ play Twist and Shout and dedicates it to Susan. Is that the thing that people did back then? <laughs> Call the DJ <laughs> on the radio station. No, I never hear them dedicating songs no. to people on the radio anymore. Just pull up the song you want on Spotify. Exactly. About. You can hear any song oh. you want immediately, anytime. Yeah, so I don't know what year that song came out. My my husband would, but um, it was probably what like 30, 40, 40 years old at the point that the show was made, and then it yeah, just it seems like it'd be it's so six, much early sixties, I would think. Yeah, yeah. Like at least thirty. Early sixties. Yeah. So 30, 30 years old, and then mm -hmm. um, and then that was um almost thirty years ago, right? Wow. That yeah. They played the yeah. Song. So. <laughs> Uh, we like we play this fun game in our house where we think about like how far things are we are removed from events in history and and then how far they were. So that kind of dates the episode. I, that's what I thought about when I heard that. Because um, now, if you call an oldies radio station, even if you did call and ask to dedicate a song, um, the oldies that they played would be you know from, from the nineties, like nineties, eighties, maybe yeah. the nineties. Yeah. I don't know. Requesting a song brings back bad memories for me too, because in high school I was I was part of the Glee Club, and so we sold we sold songs for a Valentine's Day, and then I ended up having to sing a song to the guy I liked from from somebody else. It was really humiliating. Oh, oh no. Yeah, oh, and to this day I do not enjoy Brown Eyed Girl. Oh, that's a sad story. <laughs> did you make it through okay? Did you sing? Yeah, I did. Singing? Oh no, I I I I kept a straight face. I did just fine. But my and my heart, my teenage heart was breaking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they I were they were selling song dedications in my elementary schools like a fundraiser, and I didn't quite understand the concept that it was supposed to be like a song that reminded you of the person or something or that could apply to them. And so I just, I knew my third grade boyfriend really liked this ZZ Top song, She's Got Legs. And so I dedicated it to him. <laughs> I'm sure some teachers really got a laugh out of that one. Great. Wow. You guys are adorable. I love it. <sighs> okay. So um, any favorite moments from this episode or final thoughts about it? When I think about this episode, I think about that moment between Dr. Ross and Dr. Green on the L mm -hmm. and how I just, 
and that that buddy moment that they had and how nice it was to see Dr. Ross in that role of being the grown up and the responsible one and um just to see it it, it just felt kind of refreshing like he wasn't goofing off and he wasn't flirting he was just being a good friend and it was nice to see that well he yes in this episode he's really He's really trying to mature, and this, this woman that he's he's seeing, like he's considering what the future might be like, and of course she has no interest in a future, so <laughs> that's tough for him. But it it feels like for the first time, really thinking about you know how to behave like an adult. <laughs> yeah, he actually seems happy with Diane, and when he gets paged for the um, mass casualty event drill he you know he's in bed with her at the time and he leaves to go to that but then he comes back to to go back to bed with her early in the morning and it's very sweet mm -hmm. um i also like the part where see carter and deb chen are having this competition they're very much um trying to outdo each other and see who can get the most procedures under their belt and all that. Um, and so they're, they have a Carter's using ethyl chloride on a guy's finger and Deb starts to use the torch too early to cauterize it and um, doesn't realize that ethyl chloride is very flammable and this huge fireball just um, scares the, the hell out of both of them. But not to mention the patient. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. It's really not what you want to see. That made me so uncomfortable. <laughs> that whole, their whole competition and the, uh, it just makes me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> well, in that vein, we have to mention the, the guy on PCP who uh, breaks the window out of the exam room, <laughs> stands up while he's still restrained to the, the gurney, and then walks out screaming obscenities about how his wife is cheating on him. Yeah. Uh, the, it, because it puts a stop to everything in the hospital, and there's not very many things that will do that, but right. everyone's basically fearing for their life for good reason. Uh -huh. Yes. I didn't really, I felt like, honestly, that, I mean, that was a memorable moment, but it was kind of a, it, it didn't really serve a purpose other than... No, I think it was just supposed to, sh to shock you into the fact that, you know, Saturday nights are crazy. And besides, Jenny, you stole my moment. I was going to talk about the L as my favorite moment. So. Oh, no. I had to go with something else. We both have the same favorite moment. Yes, yes, that's my favorite moment, too. I love that one on the L. I don't know anybody who doesn't love a good Mark and Doug friendship moment. Those are some of the, right. yep. some of the best moments of the whole first five seasons of ER, or for me, are those two together. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so we will wrap up that episode and um, we'll take a short break here and be back to talk about House of Cards in just a moment. And we're back. 
And before we talk about House of Cards, I did just want to say that we are so appreciative of our listeners and we love it so much when we hear from you guys. Um, We recently got an email from our friend Max who wanted to just let us know how much he likes the show. And um, I asked him if I could read part of his email on here and he was gracious enough to give that permission. So Max said, hi there. I found your show because I've recently been watching ER and was looking for interesting people talking about it. I want you to know that your perspectives are really powerful for me as a non-religious person. The way you talk about acceptance and diversity and trauma are very much not what I associate with Christianity in the United States these days. Thank you for making me check my own biases, and thank you for sharing your experiences through the lens of a show we all love. So, Max, thank you so much for those very kind words, and um, that's sort of what we're hoping for as we do the show, that um, we can, you know, talk about our experiences through the lens of ER and... um, yeah. Anybody else have any comments on Max's message? Thanks, Max, for your email. It meant a lot to me to read it and to um, just to thanks for taking time to, mm-hmm. to do something maybe out of the ordinary for, from what you would normally do. We appreciate it. It really helped motivate us to, to hear that, you know, it does make a difference in people's lives and there are, are people actually listening and that not just us having a conversation with each other. So it's really fun to know that there's a broader audience who um, appreciates some of our opinions and experiences. So thanks, Max, so much. Keep listening. Yes, and um, we, we love to hear from all of you on Twitter or on Facebook or through email, and definitely we super-duper especially appreciate it if you leave your wonderful comments about the show in the form of a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, because that helps other listeners find us, and um, I think Max was kind enough to leave us a great review written over there, too, so double extra special thanks to Max. Um, now we'll move on to... Uh, House of Cards is episode 21 of the first season of ER. So in this episode, Deb and Carter's competition steps up even more. They're furiously competing for procedures after Benton tells them that their books are due a week earlier than they previously thought. And Deb ends up getting way overzealous and trying to put in a central line by herself and almost killing the patient Doug's relationship with Diane Leeds is progressing. He's staying over more and more, and her very astute son starts to notice that Doug is there overnight. Benton and Jackie um, find a good nursing home for their mom and are trying to make that adjustment. Mark is sort of put on trial in the M&M conference. I think that's mortality and morbidity or something like that. Conference for all the doctors um, about Jody O'Brien's case, the OB patient that he lost. And Susan's sister, Chloe, returns. Still very, very pregnant and mostly okay. I think those are the high points. So, where do we want to start? The scene where... Benton and um, his sister, I guess, are telling 
their mother that it's time for her to go into a home. It's such a heartbreaking scene, mm -hmm. not only for them as they deliver the news, but also for her to see uh, her fear. She's just, she's like a little kid realizing that things aren't going to be the same. Um, and they do it in the most loving way they can, but it's just reminds you, you know, of how this shifts everyone's world when a, a loved one's care, level of care changes. Yeah, there is such that reversal of the parent and child roles there. You know, Peter ha is, knows that he's doing what he has to do to take care of his mom, but she just looks at him with these tear-filled eyes and says, do I have to go, Peter? And, and his eyes are filling with tears, too, which is breaking his heart to tell her that she does have to go, but he knows and, and his sister knows that this is what she needs, that they can't take care of her at home anymore. And that's something that, you know, a chaplain could be helpful in helping the whole family make those kinds of adjustments um, and talk about those those role changes and those big life shifts of, you know, not having mom at home anymore and her having to find, you know, to call a new place home and um, and what everyone can do to make that adjustment easier, as easy as possible. It's still hard, I think, for a lot of people to call those huge life transitions um, and what we feel about those transitions to call them grief mm -hmm. because people still want grief to be about death. Like mm -hmm. it's someone dies and then you grieve. But like sometimes, you know, all these changes are, are really also about grief. Um, and I think... Um, that, that that can help people process and understand, and that's um, that would maybe be where I started in that situation. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but to reimagine grief and re reframe our understanding of it. Yeah, a lot of people are f at least sort of familiar with the stages of grief, but it's not like you said, Janie, something they would expect to go through the the anger and the denial and all of that when you know nobody has died but it is still very much a grief situation because it's the the end of a chapter of your life and that's a huge a huge change and a huge loss So never underestimate a child and the things that they, what did you, you called him astute, right, Stacey? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why adults sometimes, you know, don't give kids enough credit. Mm -hmm. The kid apparently knows that um, Ross has been staying overnight for, you know, more than one night and uh, tells him as he's trying to get dressed and out the door that um, he forgot to lock the door last time. <laughs> so... <laughs> kind of an amusing and touching scene because the two of them get along really well. But it is also bringing Ross's hopes up for, you know, what, what his future, you know, and his place in their family might be. Yeah. 
And he really oversteps his bounds, I think. Um, by He buys a new bike for Jake, and that makes Diane really uncomfortable um, because he is sort of putting himself in that father role really quickly. And she doesn't know if this relationship has a future or even really if she wants it to, for sure. And Doug just kind of ignores her, um, telling him that this is inappropriate and just gives Jake the bike. We also have a... Go ahead, Janie. I don't envy single moms and, and how they have to navigate if or if they choose to navigate relationships, you know, and, and that's just... Just, that's just got to be so hard <laughs> and something that I take for granted that I don't think about very often. But Yeah, well, I, I dated a single dad before I married him and um, I was not allowed to meet the kids until we had been dating for six months and we knew that the relationship had a future. That was his rule, um, that he had done a lot of research about, you know, protecting the kids when you're when you're dating and divorced and he wanted to make sure that, you know, that they wouldn't fall in love with this new person in his life and then she would disappear. So he wanted to be pretty sure that he and I were in it for the long haul before I got to meet them, which I respect. I will always, I will always remember that about him. I remember you telling me about that in your very early relationship. And uh, I've mentioned that to other friends who are either divorced or single and, you know, coming into the same situations that I think that that's a really excellent standard. So Shout out to him. That was that was a great way to know that I liked him. Yeah, he's a good daddy. <laughs> it's a very loving boundary to set. Yes. yes. Boundary, yes. Yeah, I think there have to be boundaries when there are kids involved, and Doug just doesn't seem to understand that or respect that, which is not Well, not no, great. and with his, with his level of immaturity, how would he know that? Right. In some in some ways, you kind of can't blame him because he doesn't have any experience and he doesn't have like the the life sense to know that. But I also feel like it could be, you know, the the the, the mom could you know set those expectations up, could talk with him about what her boundaries need to be. So that might be partly her fault. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of a conversation that they should have had from the very beginning, really. Mm-hmm. Because he sort of got to know Jake first, right? And that's how this, he, he was introduced to her after he had been, I think, playing basketball with Jake outside the hospital. And she had already heard about him from other women that he had dated, and none of it was very positive stuff. <laughs> yeah. So she was really reluctant to get into this relationship at all. <laughs> I know some people like that kind of thing. <laughs> well, I mean, if it's George <laughs> Clooney. <laughs> we also have the storyline of um, a young woman who comes in and she seems very reluctant to be there, and uh, because she's the caretaker for her children, and her husband has a green card. Mm. And what what ends up being tuberculosis, I believe. Yeah. But um, her main panic is that being away from the family is just 
it's expensive, not a, you know, monetarily and emotionally. And um, it's, you know, really touching to realize, you know, our own privilege. And then the privilege of healthcare, the fact that, you know, she is kept waiting so long, even though, you know, we um, as chaplains understand the process of triage and why some people are more important than others. That's really hard for her to understand because she keeps saying that she just needs to get back to her children. And we do learn that one of them also suffers from tuberculosis as well. And that they're trying to tell her that she needs to bring the family in. Um, it's really hard to just think about, you know, that's wonder what conditions it is that they're living in that would cause them to be able to, to get this and uh, what their future will be like. Yeah, and then the fear, I mean, Mark says he suspects that maybe she or other members of the family are here illegally, and so that's a big part of her fear of not wanting to bring them in is that, you know, one or more of them could be deported because of this, um, that yeah. that's a risk they're running just to get medical care, you know? I love that his interaction with that mom and how he had to play this role of... Um, you know, advocate's not really the word I'm looking for, but this negotiator almost with her. He had to build trust with her and he had to convince her that he really um, was acting in her best interest. And, you know, it's not just doctors that do that. Uh, lots of healthcare professionals have to do that. And um, it's not something that you can really be taught to do. It, I mean, I, it's something that he just instinctively did out of this sense of who he was, you know, as a doctor. And that, that was something that was profound to me as I watched that scene that like this caring for them and keeping them caring for them with this illness was, was just part of an innate part of his being. And so he had to play this negotiator role with them and oh, so much depended on it and he did it well. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think, but, um, I, I just, that, that stuck out to me. Yeah, he really does think on his feet about, you know, how to, what angle to, to play in that situation. And I, and I think part of it is that he has confidence in, in his diagnosis and, you know, he automatically and instinctively knows how that's going to need to be treated. So then he can deal with the problem of how is he going to convey that and get cooperation from the patient. And, um, for us as chaplains, I think that kind of also relates to spiritual authority, which is something that mm -hmm. in CPE we're, um, we're really educated about and something that was difficult for me at first, that, you know, you, you need to be confident in what you're doing in order to be able to follow those instincts and, and employ those different angles. And uh, so, yeah, it is, it's interesting to watch the way that he does that. It's it's almost like the uh, the law of the buy-in. You know, he needed to get the mm -hmm. he needed to get the mom to buy into him, not just to his diagnosis or his treatment, but she had to buy into him and his mission and who he was. And I think we all um, have to do that because you've got to get this trust from people right out of the gates. Um, yes. And and, um, and I wonder how it's different for ER doctors and, and, and staff in contrast to other areas of the hospital. 
when they have um, other, you know, other dynamics at play, like scheduled procedures or um, if they've been there a few days, you know, but when, when people are just showing up at your door and they're super sick and they need your help, you know, having to get that buy-in from them has to be a unique challenge. Mm-hmm. But it worked. He did win her trust enough that she ends up coming back in the end with all of her family to get them tested too, um, which is what he was hoping for. And that was, like I said, a big risk for her. She's trusting him not only to, to treat them medically, but also to, to keep them safe and not, you know, turn them in if any of them are here illegally. Well, don't forget that Susan also told him when he was coming on too strong. That's true. And he yelled at her for it. <laughs> well, she said that he, he was coming across as angry. And he said, well, I am angry because it affects not only her family, but everyone that she's around and her coworkers. And Susan just is like, you need a timeout. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we need more timeouts as adults, I think, in, in, mm -hmm. at work, in the professional world. I think timeouts would do a lot of people a lot of good. Yeah, most definitely. My, uh, my supervisor at St. Francis was always excellent at that, at uh, advocating that type of self-care of how you, you know, spaced out your day. Of course, sometimes, depending on the crisis or the trauma that happens, that may not be completely planable. But, um, you know, breaking your day up and using the time to chart as a time to, you know, decompress from anything and um, you know, doing rounds in different parts of the hospital. And then he also would encourage us to come back to the office and, and read something off the shelf for 15 minutes, which was usually related to our job or how to, to do something better or spiritual formation. Mm -hmm. um, and then he also would encourage us to, to spend time together, to eat lunch together, to, to talk about what was going on in our days. And sometimes that extended to... Um, you know, other members of staff besides the chaplain, such as translators or social workers or people that, that we shared space with. So I always really appreciated his gentle way of um, encouraging ways to be intentional about using our time to, to have those time out. Yeah, that sounds like really good care for the staff. It's very healthy. And we talk about anger and that she, that, that Susan pointed out Mark's anger. Um, I've just been reading some about this lately and it's on my mind, but um, that is, is it, well, I guess I'm going to say it's not always bad for him to appear angry. Mm -hmm. um, and, and how do we navigate that, you know, feeling angry or even, even perceived anger, sometimes some people's passion, other people read as anger and it's just, it's just passion about something. But, um, but he, he needed, he maybe needed to be a little bit angry about this. I mean, they, that's a, they're going to get other people sick, you know, and it wasn't just about keeping this family safe and healthy. It was about the community 
and he felt some passion about that. And so um, I guess I love that she called him out on that anger because I think it was kind of righteous anger maybe. Yes. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think it might have been part of what helped that mom really take him seriously and realize, oh, this is a really big deal and it's very important for me to get all my family tested, you know? Well, anger is is often going to be an underlying issue, especially in the ER. When you have violent crimes that come in, when you have children that are are hurt or in accidents. Sorry about my dogs there. (laughs) Um, It does cause a lot of times for the staff to have have anger. And it, it is righteous anger for for things that are, you know, not right in the world and not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of where a chaplain can come in and help to temper that and help to call them on those timeouts and to um, be a sounding board. Yeah, and even just something as simple as saying, you know, I can see that you're angry right now, and I understand why you're angry. You know, that's yeah. that's understandable to be angry about this. Or uh, sometimes, and I feel angry about this too. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we see things that are just not right and not fair all the time, and of course we get angry. And about saying those that out loud. You know, validating that emotion can be very powerful. Uh, And a lot of times I'll try to use that in my prayer with both patients and staff Mm -hmm. to say, you know, Lord, I'm feeling this way. And I'm sure other people are feeling this way. I remember particularly in a case with an infant who had been, who was being fostered by a family who had been waiting for a baby for a very long time. And the baby ended up dying Mm -hmm. from heart issues caused by the mother's biological mother's um, drug abuse and I remember crying with that couple and I remember praying saying God we don't understand this is angry this is wrong we are just devastated Mm -hmm. Um, and voicing those things out loud can be very powerful yeah absolutely And another thing that can, um, that sometimes angers medical staff a lot of times are, can be issues with insurance, um, and that can prevent people from getting the care that they need because they're fearful of how am I going to pay for this. And Mm. Doug has um, a little girl that he's treating in this episode who she comes in with complaints of nausea, and then when he checks her, she has a little bit of an abnormal heart rhythm, but he's not too worried about it. And then a little bit later, she crashes. And um, and Doug, the way he explains it to her mom is that it's like she has a short circuit in her heart. And the first thing that her mom says is, I don't have insurance, you know, and she's just terrified of how am I going to get my daughter the care that she needs? How am I going to pay for that? And so Doug helpfully says, well, we'll help you get Medicaid, which knowing Doug probably means that some nurse is going to help her find the paperwork and get the forms filled out. He's not going to do it, but he's going to tell someone else to help her get Medicaid. Yeah, 
Yeah, so how, when was this one, 1994, 95? 95, yeah, we're up to 95 by now. Yeah, just so much has changed, but so much has stayed the same yes. for that conversation. Isn't that, ugh. like if they had to go back and remake this episode in 2019, you know, would the, could we keep that conversation the same? Maybe. Yeah, you know, sadly, and, probably so. Yes, I, I, don't, I don't know that it would be any different. Like we've gone through lots of, lots of changes, but here we we are still there. Yeah, <laughs> still talking about the same thing. Well, about what type of reform will actually you know make a difference across the board? It's it's a frustrating thing that doesn't have one simple answer. Right. Yeah, I mean, I hear people say that in the in the ER all the time that oh, I don't have insurance and. I always tell them that, you know, that's not something you need to worry about right now. Um, but but it, realistically, like, they are going to get bills from the hospital later, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And that can be that can be crippling for a lot of people. Yes, and that's, I mean, if, when you're in the middle of a crisis and that comes up on your mind, it's just another thing weighing you down. I, yeah. I remember explaining that, you know, the particular hospital that I worked for, you know, did, did very, very flexible payment plans. And it was also a religious hospital, so sometimes it would forgive certain things as well if hmm. there was, you know, no other way. Um, that usually helped for the moment, yes. I mean, I remember also saying, let's not worry about that at this moment. But the fact that that is on people's minds is really <sighs> something we're faced with quite often. Yeah. Yeah, it's very sad. And that, that concern and that worry that they have about paying the bill um, takes up some of that mental, emotional, spiritual space that really all of the, the space they have for that should be going to care for their sick loved one, mm -hmm. but it, they can't. They don't have the privilege of putting all their energy into in, into where it should be. And um, I think that might be something that we really take for granted if we're not worried about that. Um, well, well put, yes. Just being able to totally be present with somebody when they're sick you know, you, you yeah. can't be if you're worried about that. And also, this is a, a pediatric case. And, um, you know, something that cursed me over and over is that even families who wouldn't think of themselves as um, uh, underprivileged or poor or anything. As a child getting sick is always, you know, out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. Nobody plans for that. So sometimes when older people get sick, there's a either there's an expectation that well we knew that they have this chronic condition or we knew this was going to happen. And I mean, well, you know, some kids have chronic conditions too, but a lot of times it's unexpected. It's a surprise. Nobody's planned for any of this. Sometimes even very middle-class families just having to buy three meals in the hospital cafeteria a day for a week is a financial strain. Yeah. I mean, just something small like that, because that is not what they're used to, and that's not what they've budgeted for and planned for that month. And it just always 
it always surprises me those little little things nobody else is really thinking about um until you see it with with peds because um it is all just upside down nothing is as it should be when a kid is sick and that's Janie's area of specialty and <laughs> her passion so I'm glad to hear her speaking about it yeah So when Mark gets assigned a new patient who's eight months pregnant, um, he immediately hands that patient off to Susan because he's still thinking about the last patient that he lost. And Dr. Swift confronts him about that and tells Mark that he's going to present that case at the conference later that day. Um, the conference was really hard to watch, honestly, because it ends up, it gets like people are hearing about it and it just gets bigger and bigger. They have to move, move it to the auditorium. Mark's really nervous and Doug is not able to be there. So Mark sort of feels like he doesn't have anybody in his corner. He's going in alone. And just all these doctors who are more experienced than him are grilling him about everything that happened, including the OB who showed up so late that he kept calling and calling for um, who didn't come in time. And that really kind of made me angry that she was um, being mean to him about that. Cause I was like, he was trying to get you there and you just weren't getting there in time. Um, <laughs> the only one who kind of sticks up for him is Dr. Swift. But um, yeah, it was just really hard to watch that. Well, and we talked about voyeurism earlier and I almost feel like in this particular situation, it's the other staff are voyeurs of him and his humiliation um, that they've almost just come to like watch the show that they've yeah. they heard all this gossip about what happened and you know they've come to see how it'll pan out and so it really isn't fair how many that he doesn't have people to speak for him that he doesn't have the support um, and it really feels like he's being ganged up on mm -hmm. and yes I was I was angry at the OB at the, in that scene I I just don't understand how there couldn't have been anyone to yeah. assist him. So, okay, I want to go back to the voyeurism thing. And um, so this is a teaching hospital, right? And, right. I yes. Mean, obviously. And um, there's such a fine line there between what is teaching and learning. I mean, like, if I guess my question is if some of those people who showed up to watch the show still learn something that made them better doctors was it worth it and and is it is it all is, is the voyeurism aspect of it just the price you pay for them learning um I mean that's kind of what the whole medical education model is right I mean like they yes. they watch and they observe and that's how they learn um but in some ways it is it's it's not fair on the person under the microscope. And again, it's about attitude. Now, if the other people, you know, went in there with, with the, oh, I know this guy, this must have been a tough case, but I don't feel like that's really what he's getting from the atmosphere of the room. Oh, yeah. But, but again, teaching hospitals are also competitive. So, I, you know, no, you're right. Yeah. It, is, it is a fine line. Um, just for me, as a very empathic person, <laughs> it upset me. I mean, the fact that the room, you know, he's at the bottom, like he's on yeah. trial and there's everybody else is up above him, staring at him. And, you know, and 2020 is, you know, hindsight is 2020, but, and it is a, a 
situation where they needed to discuss it and talk about if there was something that could be made differently, but isn't it all in the attitude and how, you know, whether you feel like you're part of a team or not. And I don't know how you enforce that. <laughs> yeah. But the interesting thing is it sort of ends up being exactly what Mark needs. Like these, these, all these mean doctors are saying to him all the same stuff that he's been saying in his own head for the past yes. week or so, however long it's been since this woman died on his watch. And, um, and Dr. Swift keeps sort of pushing him to say, well, what else could you have done? Like he just needed to hear from the outside. I think that he, to, to be reminded that he, he really did try as hard as he possibly could have tried to save this woman's life. He did all that he knew to do. Other people might've known better, would have known better because they had more experience than him, but he was doing the best that he could do. And again, that's a situation where verbalizing all of those feelings out loud, you know, actually physically is, is powerful and cathartic. And I think you're mm -hmm. right. In the end, he does feel a complete catharsis. Well, not maybe complete, but a very, yes, it is a very healthy thing for him in the end. But I still feel like some of the people in the audience are, are rough on him. Yeah, definitely. But not any worse than the, than the voices in his head, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. And, and Sarah Jane, you named that competitive nature. I mean, you know, some of that was probably just about they were just relieved they hadn't been the ones who had been there. Yeah. That that well, and that's when it when it when it turns over, shifts over into voyeurism. When it's kind of like, oh, well, it's, it's I'm just so glad it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, just from that watching and learning model at my experience as a patient. So my second child, when she was born, it was a, a repeat C-section and I was really bummed. I really, really wanted to try to V-back and there were lots of factors involved with um, why we decided, my doctor and I really decided together that this was what we needed to do. But um, I delivered at a teaching hospital and there were 14 people in the room in the OR. Wow. And I remember though thinking like I chose that hospital and one reason was because it was a teaching hospital and because I buy into that and I believe in that system and I love learning. And I thought, you know, here's a way to make something good for my disappointment. And um, I, I just, I found a lot of empowerment in that. Like, mm -hmm. Some, some meaning that I got to make from this disappointing situation was that lots of people got to learn. And I was so happy. And then ultimately, I mean, I have a, had a healthy baby and I was healthy. So, I mean, that was a win-win a, a really. But there were so many people in there like working together and advocating and I just love that spirit. And so it could have been, I could have experienced it as like, oh my goodness, why are there so many people in here? This is so weird. All these strangers are seeing me uh, you know, in a very vulnerable state. Um, but you, you mentioned attitude earlier, like it did, it felt, it felt right. Um, and it felt healthy and good and even better than it could have been because of the learning that was taking place. So that could be a factor in the whole voyeurism conversation too. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing, Jane. Yeah.
So, um, Deb Chen takes her learning into her own hands disastrously in this episode. <laughs> um, she got, she got super jealous because Carter got to put in a central line earlier, um, while there were more experienced doctors in the room guiding him. And when Deb and the nurse Wendy are trying to find a vein on a junkie who needs an IV, um, Wendy says, oh, he's going to need a central line. And she goes to try to find a doctor to put one in. And while she's gone, Deb just says, well, I can probably do this myself. And so she just goes ahead and does it and then ends up losing the guide wire in his vein. And um, he has to be urgently rushed to the cath lab to, to find it and retrieve it. And Deb just freaks out and leaves the hospital. Um, and Carter ends up having to go find her at her house, at her parents' anniversary party, actually. And, um, and she's just very, very troubled by what she did. And, um, and she's, she's self-aware enough to say, I didn't care about the patient, only the procedure. And that she realizes that she needs to, to quit because that's not what being a doctor should be all about. You know, she should, her focus should be on the patient and not, it shouldn't just be another box to check in her notebook that I got to do this procedure at whatever cost. Um, so I, saying, I think not a lot of people would have had that kind of self-awareness and um, I really respected that. Even though she screwed up big time, she, she realized her mistake and wasn't going to make another one like it. And it's also a learning uh, time for, for Carter too. And I hope that he can take that to heart. I mean, you feel like as a viewer that, you know, this this is him, you know, realizing, whoa, you know, I need to reevaluate my priorities. Yeah. And why I'm doing this. I mean, I really do relate to that kind of competitive nature, I guess, um, that she had. Like, and I, there's, mm -hmm. I guess, I relate to the whole thing. Like, her, I love how she was able to argue to say like this isn't what it's supposed to be about and and to take a step back but I, I also just love that she was like I'm gonna get in there and learn this for myself you know <laughs> and even if it was about a procedure and achievement which is not what it should be about I relate to that and like there's this part of me that just really felt that would really hit me that whole that whole plot point what, what do we call that that whole experience for her was just so relatable well, in mm -hmm. CPE, I think there is a, an emphasis on realizing that a competitive nature can be harnessed to be a very good and healthy thing and that it can really help you with your motivation. You just have to, to check it and understand it. So, yes, the fact that her self-awareness allows her to articulate it is uh, pretty amazing. I know that we spend a lot of time in CPE talking about our com competitive nature against each other as chaplains and then, you know, also, I guess, spiritual com competition as well, which can be a delicate thing to talk about. Like, you know, whether we feel more self-righteous than somewhere else, someone else or um, that we're doing something more important. So, you know, I, I, th those, are, those are things that uh, people on a, you know, spiritual religious journey do think about, I think. It's all part of your motivations and your priorities. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I need to compete to preserve the relevance of my role. Yeah. Does that make sense? Certainly. <laughs> sometimes there are lots of times that someone else can do what I'm doing. 
um, maybe not with the same, in the same scope, but um, yeah, I feel like I, sometimes I feel like I want to be the one who gets in there and meets their need in this way, just to prove that I need to be here and, and, and that this job, this work we do is important and my whole education wasn't in vain. But then it's really not about the patient, is it? It's about me. (laughs) That's when you turn it into something good and call it spiritual authority, Janie. (laughs) (laughs) It's not sitting in a central line, but it's its own thing. (laughs) You're you're saving your lives in your own way, Janie. (laughs) All of us are. Yeah. (laughs) We're making huge mistakes in my own way. Yes, I remember just crying in my CPE supervisor's office at one point when we were going over a verbatim where I thought I had done a pretty good job. And of course, he just ripped it to pieces because that's what they do. But and and him saying, but it's OK, because you're you know, you're learning, you're learning. And I was like, but these are not pastoral care test dummies. These are real people who need good spiritual care. You know, um, these are not, this is not a computer simulation. These are actual people with real needs. And it just was so frustrating to me that he was not getting that in the way that I was trying to, trying to say it. For those of you who aren't (laughs) familiar with CPE, which stands for clinical pastoral education, a verbatim is when you write out an experience or an interaction with a particular patient and the other members in the room, whether they be nurses, doctors, you know, interactions with families and then you basically go back with um with your supervisor and discuss the things that you think you did well and the things that you know need improvement and yes they they, they call it baptism by fire because there are no there are no dummies to, to test on there they they throw you in the pool and say here here's your first step have fun bye-bye <laughs> so you you learn because you have to yeah, and you just, you do, you screw it up along the way, especially in the beginning, a whole lot. Well, I wonder if, uh, uh, what's her name, the, the doctor we're talking about, Chen? Uh-huh. If, if part of the reason that she justified the fact that she, you know, she could do this experiment was that it was on a junkie. I just, that crossed my mind, you know. Did yeah, she, possibly. Did it go through her mind that this is, like, I'm not saying she thought it was a lesser human being, but it's just a junkie. It's easy to, you know, you see so many people in addiction come through the hospital who, and often your attitudes about them can be a little bit different, even though it is a real life and death struggle that they are going through. That was something I thought about. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, they used that word, which is kind of a dehumanizing term. Yeah. Yes, yes. And we've talked about the different, you know, terms they use on here that can be um, dehumanizing before and that, you know, we as chaplains try and often try and reframe the way that people see, you know, other humans and not use those, those terms, but you know, none of us are perfect. Right. I catch myself doing that sometimes. Um, if it's a spiritual belief system that's different from my own, I have my own little, you know, I have words that I try to, I'm try, I, I try not to do that. But when I am not at my best, I find myself, you know, referring to, even if it's just the name of a denomination that they're part of, uh-huh. kind of saying it with a, you know, to my colleagues, 
you know, because they know what that means, you know, and um, which is not something I'm proud of and not something I'm saying we should do, but uh, we all find ways to, it's like we're trying to compress all of this information and all of these feelings into a little, a little spot, a little, a little compartment in our brain. And yeah. if we label somebody, but then it leads to things like assumptions that it's okay to attempt to what do you place, do, whatever that verb is for a central line? <laughs> to, to do it. Um, place, I think, yeah. Put it there. Um, put in. But for the person to, for, for her, for Dr. Ken to make that assumption, I mean, that's where that takes us if we don't keep it in check. So I try to watch that on my own with, um, when, when different religious traditions make me feel all kinds of feelings, I try not mm-hmm. to compress it into that compartment and to just feel those things because it's complicated. I had a, I had a particular coworker that I, I tried to ha- help me keep accountable on that. And I would usually tell her when I felt like I had, you know, not done well in a particular situation. So I think it, you know, give yourself grace and then, do keep yourself accountable at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Trying to do better all the time. Okay, we are running short on time. Um, anything else? Let's see. Chloe comes back at the end, shows up on Susan's doorstep, um, very pregnant and broke because her boyfriend stole all her stuff and sold it. And everyone collectively groans. Yeah. But Susan's glad to know that she's okay. Yes. Why did they come from the same family system? I just need to throw that out there. Yeah. Chloe and Susan. I mean, I know that happens all the time. That's the thought I always have when I see them together. (laughs) One's the absolute overachiever, and the other one just can't keep it together for two hours. Yeah, yeah, certainly. It could be its own episode, probably. Probably. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we meet the we meet their parents in an upcoming episode, and that explains a lot. <laughs> I'll just uh, say that much. And w- perhaps birth order too. Who knows? Do you yes. want to do some personality tests on them, Janie? Yeah, I know. I wonder what their enneagrams are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I'll go ahead and share my favorite moment. I'm probably stealing a good one. Sorry, not sorry. But um, at the end, Peter goes to the nursing home to visit his mom, and she seems really happy, even though she was not happy about going there to begin with. Um, The family has decorated her room with lots of family photos and curtains and blankets, and it just looks very homey. And they're sort of reminiscing together, going through old photos and stuff. And she um, she asks Peter if he still wants to be a doctor, and he tells her that he already is. And um, and she tells him, "Your talent is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift back to God." And it was just so sweet and so beautiful. It was a great moment. Yes. Live by. Yes. Very. Well, and she she doesn't often have those moments of clarity where mm-hmm. she hands out wisdom or even has opinions anymore. Most of the time she does relate like a child. So to have her have, you know, that good moment is just a real gift to, to Benton and, of course, uh, to us, the audience. Yeah, I kind of get the feeling that that's a glimpse of the mom that she was to him, you know, in previous yeah. times before dementia came in. 
Anyone else have any favorite moments or final thoughts? I, it, I wouldn't say favorite, but just the whole interaction between Dr. Chin and Dr. Well, oh, they're, are they even doctors yet? They're just students at this point. Chin and Carter, their dynamic is just really um, in, interesting and, and kind of energetic. And I know that um, I, I just said, I like watching them together and 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 watching their friendship, I think it's just there's there's a lot to it, and um, as the episodes unfold further. But so I don't know that that whole chest tube thing was my favorite, but it was memorable. Definitely memorable. Yes. I I remember the scene of I mean, it's when Benson and his sister are telling their mother that she will be going into a nursing home. But one of the things about that scene that I really noticed was. Um, the intimacy of touch mm. within all three of them. The, the daughter is helping her mom fix her hair. She's, she's brushing it um, and just kind of like helping her to, to feel pretty, to feel normal in this hospital setting. And then Benton takes her hand when she gets teary. And uh, I just love those little details of the way that, that they're all caring for one another. Yeah, that was very sweet. Okay, so we will wrap up there. It's getting late. Um, Janie and Sarah Jane, thank you all so much for being with me for this conversation. Listeners, thank you all for listening. And please reach out to us and let us know your thoughts about these episodes of ER. And if you are in the Charleston, South Carolina area by any chance, um, next Wednesday, March 27th, I will be at the Heard St. Andrews Regional Library for a podcaster's panel. If you've ever wanted to create your own podcast and you're not really sure how to get started, um, myself and two other wonderful podcast hosts from this area will be there to talk about what we know. And thankfully, my husband is going to be there to talk about the technical side of it because I don't know much about that except just pushing a button. So Will can explain yeah, the software. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's at 6 o'clock next Wednesday, March 27th. Um, you can find out more about it on our Facebook page, and I'd love to see you there. But if you're not local, um, please let us hear from you online. And thank you to Max and everybody else who leaves us podcast reviews. And um, yeah, we're so happy to be back with you guys. We hope to make it a regular thing <laughs> and not take another huge long break anytime soon. So hopefully we will be back with you in a couple weeks. And to talk more about ER. Bye. ER Chaplains Watching ER is produced at Top 5 Studios by my talented husband, Will Lawton. Music for the show is provided by our band, Rogue 2. You can hear some more of our great original songs at Rogue 2, that's T-W-O dot rocks. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app so other listeners can find us. Let us know your thoughts about the show on Twitter at chaplains underscore ER or comment on our Facebook page at chaplains watching ER. You can learn more about the hosts and find show notes for each episode on our website, chaplainswatching.net. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Stacy N. Sargent. That's S-E-R-G-E-N-T. I blog about hospital chaplaincy, step parenting, and other stuff at stacynsargent.com. 
where you can also find links to get my book, Being Called Chaplain, How I Lost My Name and Eventually Found My Faith. Join us right here next week for more insightful conversations about ER.